called education. What I call soul craft, which is the shaping of the kind of human being we choose to be, given the fact we're all born in circumstances not of our own choosing, but can still make choices in such a way that there can be a little bit more courage and vision, service to the vulnerable in the world when the worm gets our bodies. Welcome to the Esoteric Negro. Today's guest is Mitch Horowitz, an historian and the author of several books, including Occult America, The Secret History of How Mysticism Shaped Our Nation, and Miracle Habits, The Secret of Turning Your Moments into Miracles. In this episode, we discuss the connection between Black liberation and magic, the often overlooked contributions of Black practitioners, and how seekers can apply Mitch's miracle habits to their lives in these uncertain times. And now please welcome Mitch Horowitz. You are an occult historian, an author. Um, I have the Miracle Club, uh, Miracle Habits, and the Occult in America on my Kindle. Um, And if you, you know, I think that it's cool if you kind of tell everyone about yourself too, and first to kind of introduce yourself to probably better than I Sure, happy to. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I am a historian of occult spirituality, uh, the author of uh, books, including those you just mentioned. I consider myself a believing historian. I participate in many of the movements I write about. And in fact, uh, most historians of religion are what could be classified as believing historians. Uh, People don't often like to describe themselves that way because they think it's compromising. But the truth is most of the histories that we have of mainstream religious movements, whether it be Judaism or Catholicism or new religious movements, Mormonism, Christian science, and uh, the Wiccan religions and and other nature-based faiths, most of the time they are written by people who are part of those congregations in one way or another. And that doesn't compromise critical thought. In many ways, it can heighten critical thought depending on the individual because you get closer to the values of the seeker when you are one yourself. Uh, So I try to be upfront with people that I I am a believing historian. I write widely uh, both to the subcultures that I participate in and the larger mainstream world, which comes with challenges of its own because uh, there are cultural affinities within mainstream media that you bump up against very, very quickly. And you have to ask yourselves questions yeah. about, you know, how do I relate to this? Am I prepared to function within this? So uh, that's an encapsulation of some of my work. Yeah. I, um, and obviously I mentioned earlier that um, I had, I think I had heard, first heard you on a podcast, I believe, I think it was Jason Lube's podcast, yes. because I was um, reading at the time, I think I was reading High Weirdness, and I wanted to gather another book. And then I was like, oh, okay, like, you know, and then I listened to your podcast. And that's how I got into your work. Um, and right now, kind of being a part, joining the this community, this uh, spiritual mm-hmm. community for the past, maybe five or six mm-hmm. years. Um, it seems to me now that it's kind of a I mean, I don't want to judge, but it seems like it's a trend and I've even been guilty of this to kind of be into the rituals, get into it before really, I know for myself, not really doing my homework and not really being interested in the history of what, especially with a lot of the African religions, there's like a reclaiming of these, you know, cultural traditions across the board, Mm -hmm. you know, from every people from every background. So what I want to ask you is, um, 
kind of, I want you to kind of tell everyone, like we want to start, like I know in your book, um, Occult in America, you talk about Frederick Douglass, mm-hmm. Black Herman, and kind of tell us a little bit about specifically Freeman and, you know, slaves and their role in spiritualism in America and the cultural, there's a cultural lineage there that's really interesting that I'm interested to hear what you, you know, kind of explain. Sure. Uh, in Occult America, I write a lot about figures mm-hmm. who came out of or intersected with the tradition of hoodoo at one point or another. Mm-hmm. And as you were asking your question, I found myself trying to formulate what, what was it that drew me as a historian and as a seeker in the direction of, of hoodoo and and made me feel impassioned to document that uh, movement, at least in part, you know, in the book. And I think it, it must have been this. Um, in the early part of the uh, 20th century, there was an Episcopal minister named Harry Middleton Hyatt. And Harry Middleton Hyatt produced this just epic, almost hard to believe, five-volume field study of hoodoo practice in the United States. And he was not an occultist, at least not in how he identified himself. You know, he wore a priest's collar. He went across the United States, including major parts of the American South, with nothing other than a, a, a an old-fashioned tape recorder, speaking to different uh, practitioners of hoodoo. And he assembled this just monumental multi-volume field study of hoodoo practice as it existed in the nation at that time. And he said he was often asked why, you know, what, what drove him to undertake that effort. And he just said the simplest thing. I just wanted to know what was out there. I just wanted to know what was out there. And for some reason that statement just ignited me and this man became a bit of a hero to me. And so I started to study hoodoo, Myself, And I think one of the most extraordinary experiences I had when I was, was writing Occult America, and it still reverberates through my life today, is that at some point or another, I came upon the story of Frederick Douglass and the magic route in which he described a, uh, a man who, who he considered to be a, a kind of, who he described as a kind of wise religious counselor or an old African medicine man who had preserved some of the old ways, giving young Frederick, who at the time was about 15 years old, and in grave danger for his life, this, this, this magic root, which, which he kept in, in his pocket on his right-hand side. And as I was reading this encounter, it dawned on me, apropos of the study I had been doing of hoodoo, that this had to have been um, Jalap root, this, 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 spherical root that drives into a hard nub that's native to the American South that within hoodoo tradition is very often called John the Conqueror root or high John. Mm-hmm. And I read all three of Frederick's memoirs where he recounts this episode largely in the same terms, sometimes adding a detail, sometimes subtracting a detail, but largely the same. And I fell to my knees and I thought to myself, this is an episode from the history of, of hoodoo that has been completely neglected in our history because, or at least our written history, because mainstream historians don't recognize it. 
they're not interested in it, it's not part of their background, they find it boring, whatever it is. And I came across these kinds of things again and again and again, such as the connection between Mahatma Gandhi and the occult movement of theosophy when he was a young man. And I began to realize, you know, there really is this so-called secret history in America, and it's not a secret history that comes out of conspiracy theories or paranoia or, you know, what are the Illuminati mm-hmm. doing tonight? You know, none of that mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. It comes out of this unbelievable family tree of neglected history. And I tell you, you know, when I read that chapter in each, all three of Frederick Douglass's memoirs, and I could understand it in light of hoodoo, thank you, Harry Middleton Hyatt, thank you to the practitioners, Mm -hmm. thank you to all the people who gave their lives and dedicated themselves so that this history could come down to us today. It just, it turned my head around, you know, it totally turned my head around. So that was a signature moment for me. And, uh, Mm -hmm. You know, I would have to say, as a historian, as a seeker, as an individual, you know, uh, hoodoo became a part of my experience as a as a as a as a person who attempts to 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 in his own way to journey through different worlds and to document metaphysical experience. So that was a big moment for me. Mm. You know? Yeah, I um, <clears throat> I've, I've noticed too with a lot of these, and when you mention. When, when you in your writing, that it seems, and not just in this particular chapter, but it seems like there's a link between, not to get off topic, a link between magic and liberation and empowerment. Absolutely. Which is kind of like okay, now that the little the breadcrumbs that I've been reading over the past you know couple of months, it's like okay, this is leading to somewhere making like a, a point. Absolutely. Um, that is such. It, it's absolutely true. And it's not just a general statement. It's, it's true in a very concrete ways. You know, one of the things that I also realized, and, and, and this came to me when I was working on my second book, which is called One Simple Idea, which is a history of the positive mind movement and, and the impact that that movement mm-hmm. has had on mo- modern life, which we might today call power of positive thinking or law of attraction mm-hmm. secret. But it is so mm-hmm. deep in the groundwater of this country. It's had a huge impact. So... Apropos of your your point that there's a connection between political liberation and, and magical practice, you know, I realized when I was researching that book that the occult healer Franz Anton Mesmer shows up in Paris just before the French Revolution, mm-hmm. um, in the in the in the late uh, um, 1770s, and mm-hmm. Mesmer claims that uh, all of life is animated by this invisible etheric fluid, which he calls animal magnetism. And he maintains that he can place individuals into a kind of trance state or what we would call a hypnotic trance and manipulate their animal magnetism and cure them of physical maladies, emotional disorders, what have you. And King Louis XVI is immediately suspicious of Mesmer. He does not Mm. like this. And I start to come to realize Mesmerism was considered not just an occult practice, but a practice or a method that was possessed of political implications. And I'm asking myself, why? And historians are sort of saying, well, you know, everything in France pre-revolution 
had political implications, which is an interesting observation because I would say everything in America today has political implications. You know, name one thing that doesn't have political implications at this moment, you know. And I'm realizing that the political implications are this. You could argue back and forth all you want. Is animal magnetism real? Does any of this stuff work, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But if Mesmer is coming along and claiming that every individual is animated by this invisible etheric fluid and every individual, whether a plantation owner in the West Indies or a slave on that plantation in the West Indies, can be um, put into a trance state and, and demonstrate the same results, which is exactly what he and his students were, were claiming and demonstrating, then it stands to reason that all human beings are equal, beings are regardless equal, of caste yeah. or privilege or background right. or whatever it is. That was hugely threatening uh, to the to the powers that be, to the aristocracy. And mm -hmm. that was among the reasons why King Louis chaired a royal commission to investigate and eventually denounce Mesmer. And that royal commission was headed up by a man named Benjamin Franklin, who at the time was the United <laughs> States yeah. ambassador to France. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's it's difficult also for us to grasp that back at that time – we didn't have terms like subconscious mind or unconscious or things like that. That stuff didn't really start to uh, get referenced until actually the late 19th century. If you said to somebody, you know, there's another, there's a whole another glacial part to your mind, that was not recognized. And so it was Mesmer's students, his best students, who said, you know, maybe the master was wrong about um, – this invisible fluid, but there's something he was getting at. And they began to grapple towards the earliest understandings of the subconscious mind. But, but what Mesmer was doing had political implications because it suggested that all human beings are essentially the same being. There's a, a basic mm -hmm. essential human wholeness that can't be divided up in any ultimate way by rank or privilege or whatever you have. And so when we say that magical practice has political implications, that's no joke. As soon as the individual begins to realize his or her inner dimensions, it invariably raises questions about outer dimensions as well, which is why in this country throughout the 19th century, progressive movements, radical movements, liberatory movements, including abolitionism, including suffragism, including black nationalism, including mm -hmm. democratic socialism, Mm -hmm. intertwined with magical movements. The history was just incredible. So I try to trace that in Occult America and, and One Simple mm -hmm. Idea. It's, I mean, these movements were, were, were sister movements. That's changed somewhat today, but that shouldn't, that shouldn't distract us from th that basic foundation of, of, of history. Yeah, and I, and I realize the importance of that. Like, again, I was talking about earlier where, you know, a lot of the groups or a lot of the people, because the information, again, with the esoteric, it is like, it is a hunt to find some. I mean, hunt. now it's, I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's a lot easier now than it was 20, 30 years ago. Yeah. But um, I feel like I was like, you know, probably I didn't start off in the right place, but now it's like, no, okay, well now, like, instead of just being like, okay, I'm in a tarot or I had someone, I had a great, great aunt who did, uh, Red playing cards, I guess they called it cartomancy yeah. or whatever. And like, there were like these hints of those things. I grew up in South Texas, and a lot of my family's from Louisiana, so oh. we had, you know, we had like that. You know, I was raised charismatic, evangelical, oh. uh -huh. and so 
as an adult when then we had, you know, the other side of the family that would kind of, you know, believed in a little bit of both. And then as an adult doing this research, I real realized it's not really <laughs> a lot different. It's wild. And I feel a little duped. They just, you know, completely separated when you start to compare, you know what I mean? Like, um, the belief systems, I guess. And it's, like, it's like, they're really the, a lot, it's really similar. It's unbelievable. I, I have, uh, this is a little story from Hoodoo history and I'll, I'll make it very brief. Um, my mother told me growing up that if, 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 if it's threatening to rain and you have a picnic or a wedding outside or something mm -hmm. and you don't want it to rain, you stick a knife in the ground. And she said, that's mm -hmm. an old bit of Jewish folklore. You stick a knife in the ground. Yeah. When I began to research hoodoo, I realized that that is actually a hoodoo-derived practice. And that mm -hmm. hoodoo-derived practice itself is a retention of a, of a West African practice in which the god of rainstorms and thunder, Chongo, mm -hmm. is said to chop up clouds with an axe. And sometimes there were Southern practitioners, African-American practitioners of hoodoo, who when they wanted to... Um, call upon the blessings of Chongo and keep it from raining would put an ax into the ground. Whatever byways, travels, you know, that the, the, the people engaged in, uh, that came down to my mother as a bit of what she considered folklore from her own background of sticking a knife in the ground. But in fact, it was, it's a piece of hoodoo folklore, mm -hmm. which itself is a retention from West Africa. It's amazing, you know, how the human how story unfolds. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you and I and you mentioned also in that same in the same, you know, breath about uh Marcus Garvey who, you know, and also you say he was more like he was really in the metaphysical um I never would have guessed it, you know. I never would have guessed either. That was super surprising to me too. Yeah. Which would make sense now when you like look at his actual like his you know, belief and the things that he was saying. Absolutely. That he was, you know, kind of like a precursor to um a lot of the things that we're into now. Without question. Um, and uh, again, you know, if somebody had said to me, you know, Marcus Garvey was heavily steeped in metaphysics, I would have said, come on, you know, I know him mm -hmm. as a, he's an activist, you know, and, and, yeah. and I could have identified certain things that he was about in terms of economic empowerment. But mm -hmm. when I read to his speeches and, and I went deep into his speeches and articles filled with what we would call new thought language, metaphysical language, mm -hmm. absolutely right. blew me away, blew me away. Yeah. yeah. I, uh, <clears throat> and so the most recent book that I've been trying to get into, I, I got a copy, my hands on a copy of the black art. Oh, and I could not, yeah. um, I will Rolo Ahmed. I could not find hardly anything about him. And then a friend recommended this book and I've, I've been reading that. And, um, I've, I've obviously heard about Crowley. Yeah. And that, and I think that he was like around and during the same time. Mm -hmm. And I was curious, like, what would, and I know that like he was in England for a little bit. I don't know if you know, I mean, of course you probably know a little bit more than I do. Um, how, I'm curious how, how a lot of these people were able to acquire the, not only like leave and go abroad and acquire like these different ancient teachings or who taught who, or was it just passed down orally yeah. or how these, you know, especially, you know, people of color were able to like move about these circles. I guess he was in England, so it was different, but um, do you know anything? I'm sure you know a lot about that. And I'm curious to know like how, well, you know, it was interesting. I, <clears throat> um, going back, you know, all these generations, people were, they were without the resources, of course, that, you know, we don't know today or anything right. remotely like them. And 
I think they had to participate in the culture directly. They had to travel. They had to talk to one another. They mm-hmm. had to get t- together with one another. You know, maybe someone like Benjamin Rucker, you know, Professor Black mm-hmm. Herman would be blowing mm-hmm. through town, you know, and oh my God, you know, he's in Cleveland. I've got to go to, you know, his boarding house and I've got to see him and I've got to talk to him and I'll buy one of his mm-hmm. books. And, you know, there was such an exchange. And um, interestingly enough, you know, there was some degree of m- mail order um, commerce and, and, and literature, some of it of mixed quality, but, but some of it not so bad, you know, I mean, and mm-hmm. then you had guys like, uh, the famous, uh, catalog, occult merchant, uh, HW DeLawrence, who, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, he would pirate books, clip and paste them, mm-hmm. put his own titles on them, put his own byline <laughs> on them. Yeah. And yet, you know, Sometimes, despite all the the weird subterfuge and byways, real information or real folkways would get imparted, you know, to people, and people would travel. And you mentioned Crowley. Um, Crowley attempted his own uh, translation of the Tao Te Ching uh, here in the mm-hmm. United States. I think it was around, mm-hmm. maybe it was just around the the First World War. He came to the United States to avoid service mm-hmm. in the army, and. Um, you know, people look at it today and they're like, wow, that's that's a really poor translation. And I say, well, first of all, don't be so sure, you know, because he, he there's a certain inventiveness and a certain brilliance that can come when you have very little resources on which to draw. Right. You know, I, I always point out to people um, the very first English translation of the Tao Te Ching, even in partial form, was unavailable until 1838. Um, the The... Back in the 1840s, um, there was probably only about five English language copies of the Bhagavad Gita here in the United States. Mm -hmm. Um, One was in the private library of Ralph Waldo Emerson. One was in the library at Harvard, and three were in private hands. I mean, this literature was so rare, you know, so people were really forced onto their own uh, resources. And what they did with those resources was just incredible. You know, I think sometimes today, I certainly ask myself the question, where are all the great teachers? You know, where are the great teachers? You know, where's the Rudolf Steiner and the Madame Blavatsky and, um, you know, or or even the great eminences, you know, and personalities. Mm -hmm. And, And there doesn't seem to be very many of them in my estimation. And that may be because, uh, we, these people from earlier generations, they couldn't just select, you know, they were forced to invent, they were forced to innovate because so little was actually available to them. And Mm -hmm. difficult as that must have been, it also was a goad to a great deal of uh, thought and development and and progress, I I think. Mm -hmm. And and so now that we've, you know, kind of talked a little bit about that, what I'm also curious about is, so what happened? It seemed like there was a time where people, this was like very open, people were exchanging information. And, and again, like, you know, like you mentioned uh, earlier where the gentleman wrote the volumes and he was a, a Presbyterian minister, yeah. but also talking about these, you know, what we would consider now is, I guess, taboo to mix the two. Yeah. Um, so wh- historically, like what happened and why, 
was there a split like in I guess the you know the nineteenth uh, century? I guess that's when it started. Is and my favorite pastime. I'm not gonna lie to you. Is blaming everything on the charismatic movement. But if that's <laughs> not what happened, <laughs> well, if I can, just, <laughs> I just want you to. No, I, like, I understand. Believe me. Um, <laughs> I mean, the charismatic movement is so interesting because yeah. you know, the embrace of signs and wonders yeah. responds to a need that the individual experiences. And it's funny. I remember uh, there was a hoodoo dealer up in East Harlem, who's now deceased. And I was friends with him and we would get together and we would talk. And he said to me, this is interesting. This may feed into your thesis, thesis of blaming everything on the charismatic movement. <laughs> um, his store, his shop was on um, East 116th street. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of Hooja stores going back, this must go back about mm, 15 years, mm-hmm. 20 years. I mean, there were massive hoodoo emporiums in Harlem. I mean, there were stores even the size of small grocery stores. It was just amazing. And they began disappearing, began disappearing. And I was talking to my friend uh, whose name was George. And uh, he said that he was experiencing difficulty with his business because he said that a lot of his patrons, a lot of his customers were moving towards the uh, prosperity ministry. We're moving towards the mm-hmm. storefront prosperity ministries. Mm-hmm. And he said, so I had a lot of people who were Catholic who would purchase hoodoo supplies, big intersection with Catholicism mm-hmm. and hoodoo. A lot of people who, you know, were, were, they might've classified themselves as, you know, one variant of Christian or another, but they were into hoodoo as a practice. Mm-hmm. But he said, once they go into the prosperity ministries, I never, they never come through my doors again. I never see them again. So he was experiencing some of those prosperity ministries, Mm -hmm. I suspect, were Pentecostal and charismatic. Mm -hmm. So there was an issue there. There was an Mm -hmm. issue there. Um, And, uh, and I would say also, you know, here in the United States, I mean, it's funny because there is a dividing line, like the prosperity gospel, or Mm -hmm. that term didn't really exist back in the day, but what we Mm -hmm. might call the prosperity gospel was meaningful to Marcus Garvey. Mm-hmm. whose chief interest was in black liberation. Mm-hmm. It was meaningful to Wallace D. Waddles, who wrote The Science of Getting Rich, whose chief mm-hmm. interest was in democratic socialism. It was meaningful to a, a whole array of figures who themselves were deeply attached to various liberatory movements. As the American economy uh, kind of kicked into high gear, as railroads reached towns mm-hmm. all over the United States, as, as the Sears catalog reached towns all over the United mm-hmm. States, as um, the stock market started to become part of people's lives, mm-hmm. this hope of mass prosperity was, was suddenly on the map, you know, was on the horizon, at least for certain groups of people. Mm-hmm. And the prosperity gospel, the early metaphysics of science of getting rich, was there to respond to that. And... Mm-hmm. So it moved outside of more experimental or more avant-garde or more radical circles and moved into everyday American kitchens and parlors Mm -hmm. and workplaces. And as the nation was changing from an agricultural nation to a more industrial or office-based nation, you also had a lot of people who may have come from an agricultural background who had never worked in an office before, had never worked in a store before, didn't know what was expected of them. Mm-hmm. So this literature also in the form of like, say, Dale Carnegie, how to win friends and influence people, that mm-hmm. began to enter people's lives. So it became 
uh, less radical, less outsider, less mm-hmm. reformist, more mainstream. And that has obviously continued today. And of course, our wonderful, wonderful president uh, identifies the power of positive thinking as probably the only book that he's ever read. And that's and, big in that culture now. Yeah. That's very a, big in that culture. In the past culture. 20 years, like the positive thinking, like I thought that sprung up from, you know, what um, I was brought immense. up in the yeah. And as such, you know, um, instead of blaming the charismatics, you know, people will sort of blame me. You know, it's like, hey, yeah. you know, you're into this. Mom, stuff. I'm sorry, I don't blame you. <laughs> no, no, I know, I know. You know, but 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 that does place people like me, frankly, in front of a question because I could divide it out all you want. You know, I could say, well, you know, it's up to the individual. It has progressive mm-hmm. roots, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But at the end of the live long day. A president who I consider a neo-fascist mm-hmm. does identify that book as the one and only book that 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 he's ever evidently and clearly read. Mm-hmm. And if that doesn't place me in front of a question, shame on me. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think I I have to ask myself something about that, and I I wrestle with that. I wrestle yeah. with that because yeah. I mean, yeah, he's he's definitely he definitely knows. I, I had an argument once with someone. She said, you know, Trump's a great. Manifester. She used that word. Well, she may have a point. She had a, she had a point. Words. She had yeah. a point. And I, after I thought about it, I was like, well, maybe I shouldn't be so. She has a point. Um, but yeah. Uh, it's, it's, there is something. It's a tricky one, you know, and I wrestle with it. Like, I don't have mm-hmm. any answer that I've come to. I mean, yeah. you know, I was reading this biography of uh, Steve Jobs and um, uh, people around Jobs used mm-hmm. to say that he was capable of what they called re, um, reality distortion. Mm-hmm. So he might have an idea for a certain uh, technology. Mm-hmm. He would be told it couldn't be done, and he would insist otherwise. And lo and behold, uh, over the course of his insistence, something would happen. There would be some sort of breakthrough. And, you know, this this reality distortion um, is a tantalizing concept you know it, it it goes well with chaos magic it goes well mm-hmm. with ceremonial magic it it goes well with new thought you know there's there's something there and trump seems to possess that ability to some degree mm-hmm. it's just that it's bereft of any ethics it's bereft of yeah. any sense of human reciprocity mm-hmm. and there's a, a grimness to it and obviously and this is something i always point out about new thought we experience many laws and forces, in my estimation. It doesn't matter how many times Trump denies um, the gravity of the COVID virus. The COVID virus does not care. And when you don't have something that responds to being called a bad name, uh, you know, you reach the limits of Trump's powers, which we're mm-hmm. seeing today right. in other ways as well. So, you know, he's an interesting paradigm because he is a great manifester, but he also, and I don't use the term manifest, I use the term select for reasons of my own, which I go into in Miracle Club, but, but it, it, that, that, that disruption also has its, its limits quite evidently because mm-hmm. uh, COVID cases are, yeah. are rising regardless of how much he, you know, insults yeah. the messenger. Yeah. Um, and it's been interesting also in this community, I know in the last couple of months, like I know when, you know, obviously COVID happened and then all this, you know, this social uprising yes. started happening. And yes. I found myself in a place where, you know, I was still working from home and, you know, wanting to um, kind of, again, like being a seeker, like you said, trying to figure out, you know, I know how I felt, but also I had thought about this when the, the, quarantine eventually like eventually happened that I wanted to spend time 
kind of like, you know, thinking about my life, yeah. using my time wisely. And I think that, you know, as, as good as a lot of this has been to kind of like, you know, pull the veil back a little bit, I guess, and kind of like showing all of us what we need to work on or like showing us ourselves, like the mirrors up on us, I feel like a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Um, <clears throat> you know, it's, it, Internet and in the spiritual community, especially, there's been. Um, I was su- I wasn't surprised, but it was. It wasn't. At first, I was angry, and then it was like there was a lot of spiritual bypassing. It felt like I don't know. I hate to use that. I know it's a popular term to use. No, I I I I, I like that. Yeah. Um, and for someone that's still you know learning and new, it just kind of felt like okay, is this what? you know, what this is going to be, am I going to, you know, feel again, like, you know, like, especially in the evangelical world where they've now kind of tried to come around and address certain issues. And in this other community that I like really resonated, I've always been interested in. And then I'm kind of like, you know, again, picking up breadcrumbs learning. Um, Is it going to be more the same? And then I just had to say, okay, well, get off the internet, get off Facebook for it when you need to. Get off Facebook. Yeah. Get off Facebook for sure. Yeah. yeah. And, <clears throat> you know, and the more I kind of withdrew myself, had my feelings and drew, drew myself, and I was like, okay, well, maybe I'll read. And then the podcast idea came. And, uh, you know, I think that um, it's, it's a good time to feel something. But I also like speaking about uh, miracle habits. Um, yeah. I feel like that this book in particular is a good starting point for a lot of us who are feeling this way, who want to kind of like, we don't want to get too much in the fray, but we also, you know, want to use this time productively without, you know, and it's hard not to feel anything. You know what I mean? Oh, without question. And and I appreciate you bringing up the spiritual bypassing because I think that's very important. One of the things that I try to do in Miracle Habits, and one of the things that's been very, very important to me in my mm-hmm. work over the past year or so, is mm-hmm. we as a spiritual community have to be extremely careful, in my estimation, not to start reciting, not to start falling back on doctrine or dogma. Mm-hmm. We are here within the alternative spiritual world, many of us, because we are fleeing doctrine and dogma that we grew up with. and. Orthodoxy, Mm -hmm. especially within the spiritual realm, can reestablish itself very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. And I want us as a generation, and I think we're being given the space to do this, uh, amidst all this chaos, and it can be very unsettling, to verify everything, you know, ask Mm -hmm. questions about everything, thoughtful questions, Mm -hmm. not random questions, but really thoughtful questions. You know, how do I know that this is true? Mm-hmm. How do I know what's being handed down to me from translations of translations mm-hmm. of translations of Eastern literature, mm-hmm. which the person who's 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 reciting or, or commenting on can't even read in its original language is functional, is right, is true, is adaptable, mm-hmm. is helpful for me today. You know, I remember I had this experience many years ago. I was in a group meeting of a of a spiritual group, and uh, we were having a uh, an exchange. And a senior member of the group, he misunderstood a question that I was uh, asking. And his response was, you know, there's no shortcut. There's no shortcut. And I thought to myself, okay, well, wait a minute. He misheard my question, but let's leave that aside. How do I know there's no shortcut? You know, 
I presume that's true because it seems true. You know, we have to go through rigor in life. But I don't know that's true as a matter of fact until I verified in my own experience that there's no shortcut to some kind of progress. And that was a signature moment for me because it caused me to ask a lot of questions. How do I know, for example, that what we call uh, a non-attachment um, is uh, a necessarily uh, a valid, good, helpful, even attainable goal uh, for the seeker. How do I know, in fact, that, you know, the other day I was being interviewed by a newspaper in India and they said, and the reporter said to me, you know, um, what is it that brings people peace of mind? Mm. And I said, well, I don't mean this to be provocative, and I don't mean this to push anybody's buttons, but I would say a sense of personal victory is what brings people peace of mind. Mm -hmm. And I realize I say that knowing how everything within our contemporary spiritual culture wants to argue with that, wants to push back at mm -hmm. that. Like, what do you mean victory? What do you mean power? What about service? Mm -hmm. What about non-identification? What about yeah. giving back? You know, and I would say, well, take a pause, take a pause, you know, victory or power doesn't mean that I don't have ethics. It doesn't mean I don't feel a sense of reciprocity. It doesn't mean I don't feel connected to a human whole. Yeah. But I believe that those terms have been too often shunted to the margins within our alternative spiritual culture mm -hmm. because people are fearful that they describe force or violence or something like that. Mm -hmm. But if I don't mean it that way, and I'm speaking of something of a different scale, I'm searching because I'm trying to get someplace. Yeah. And I assume that my not, life is not exceptional. Mm -hmm. So if I get someplace, it might might be useful for my neighbor, you know. Mm -hmm. And frankly, you know, we mentioned Facebook. This is one of the primary reasons I left Facebook. I, I wrote an article called, I think it was called Why I Left Facebook. <laughs> and, uh, and yet I don't think I, 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 I made this point in the article, but I want to make it with even a, a sharper um, resolution here. You know, my reasons for leaving Facebook were not the right-wing politics, mm -hmm. was not my, you know, Uncle Ralph being obnoxious to me. It was, I felt, uh, ultimately, uh, the poor quality of the spiritual exchange mm. because issues like, like the very one that you and I are exchanging about right now would get frequently uh, greeted with what I would call uh, catechism. You know, just, just this call and response chorus of spiritual uh, uh, truisms mm. and, 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 and principles that were considered to be true by reason of repetition, mm. by reason of vintage, mm. rather than by reason of verification. Mm. And I thought, this is, this is not conducive to the search. Yeah. I want us to verify everything right now. Right. Yeah, and uh, I like what you said about um, in uh, Miracle Habits about total environment. <laughs> and <Yes. laughs> I feel like that has a lot to what we're, what we're talking about. And um, getting away from cruel people. And I feel like also, you know, that's kind of a thing that people talk about all the time. And we also need to check ourselves and make sure we aren't doing that to other people, being that yes. person. And I, I try to ask that whenever somebody does something, whenever somebody sort of you know, throws a rock in my direction, I think, I try at least, you know, I try. I hope I'm not doing that to anybody. Right. I hope I'm not doing that to right. anybody. Right. Yeah. Elizabeth Gilbert said is, uh, 
she said it's, it's my side of the street clean. So that makes, that's kind of <laughs> the same thing. Really important. Uh, yeah. But yeah. you know, I, I feel like this, this book miracle habits is, and, and also I've been thinking about, okay, as along with, you know, studying and, and being in this, like, you know, kind of joining this community is, is important, but I feel like I've been studying a lot about um, now I kind of want to feel like, okay, now how do we kind of mend and heal a little bit? And mm. I've been talking to, that's come up in all the conversations that I've had, you know, like, okay, what's next? Like, how do we heal? How do we get productive, talk, you know, and talk with each other? And I feel like the, what, you know, some of the, that most of the habits you talked about is like, kind of is, is a way to do that. And I know mm-hmm. that a lot of people don't, you know, and you, you tweeted about um, the secret and I feel like a lot of people do the, ca- the cause of all problems. <laughs> and I feel like a lot of times people do throw the baby out with the bathwater. That's an old saying, but it's true. You know, there's something, I feel like there is something to be said about the positive thinking movement. And I think that it's maybe had some negative connotations, but I feel like, you know, the, the, what you've kind of given us in this book. And I think you said you wrote this during quarantine too. Yes, like probably the right, <laughs> the perfect timing for this. Kept me, kept me busy, you know? Yeah. Um, I, you know, the secret is an interesting topic. It's it's worth touching upon. Um, Rhonda Byrne is apparently coming out with some kind of a sequel to The Secret uh, mm-hmm. later this year, mm-hmm. so it's going to be on people's radar again, although it seems perpetually on people's radar. I mean, the book itself is probably about uh, 14 years old mm-hmm. at this point, and yet it's still routinely mm-hmm. attacked as if, yeah. you know, yeah. here's where everything went wrong. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and I, I'm not so sure that's true. Yeah. I have my criticisms of Rhonda. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm explicitly critical of the secret in my book, One Simple Idea, which is a history of the positive mind movement. Mm-hmm. Um, I do not believe, as as Rhonda has expressed in the past, I don't know if she still feels this way, she may have changed. I do not believe that we all exist under one mental super law. Mm-hmm. I believe we experience many different laws and forces, including social conditions, mm-hmm. including economics, including uh, natural disasters, including you know, you name mm-hmm. it, you know, an earthquake occurs in Haiti. It's not because the, you know, people of Haiti have been vibrating on that, that mm-hmm. level. It's because of yeah. tectonic plates yeah. beneath Haiti. And we can understand these things right. through geology and, and, and Haiti has other problems, uh, perhaps, you know, tied to economics and, 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 and colonialism and other issues that, that have been part of the human situation mm-hmm. for a long time. I believe that the mind is one source of influence among many other sources of influence so I have a difference with Rhonda in that way. Although, again, Rhonda may have changed mm-hmm. her thinking as well. It's been a long time. At the same time, I will not join the chorus of criticism, and it's usually a great deal more than criticism, of The Secret mm-hmm. for this reason. I do believe that The Secret got millions of people thinking about how to use their minds mm-hmm. in different ways. And I do believe, ultimately, that is positive. Um, I, I, I think that Critics too often leap to the assumption that somebody encounters the secret and they're suddenly making all these ruinous decisions with their lives. They're spending Mm -hmm. money that they don't have. They're foregoing medical care. And that has never been true in terms of the American encounter Mm -hmm. with alternative spirituality. You know, Americans uh, of all walks of life have always demonstrated the capacity to kind of, um, well, there's a shaker expression, um, hands to work, hearts to God. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that, that many, many people demonstrate the ability to 
search to seek while still maintaining whatever the normative requirements are of their everyday lives. And those things can be very difficult and painful sometimes too. So I don't see the secret as being ruinous. Mm -hmm. And I think that it does a disservice to the people who discovered the secret who said, well, you know, maybe there's something here to assume that there was this uniformity of response Mm -hmm. to it, that suddenly you have people jumping out of windows because they think they could fly. Mm -hmm. Of all the millions of different people who read the secret, you have millions of different stories, millions of different reactions. Mm -hmm. Some of them might have liked parts of it. Some of them might have dismissed it. Some of them might have experimented. Some of them might have moved on to, I don't know, you know, you name it, a Wallace D. Waddles Mm -hmm. or an Elizabeth Gilbert Mm -hmm. or, you know, what have you. And I think that um, uh, the critics, because they are so, because the secret falls so far outside of their cultural Mm -hmm. affinities, assume a uniformity of response on the part of the reader. And I think that's a big mistake. I um, <clears throat> I think that some of the, you know, obviously I've been kind of fo- following you throughout this whole thing. And um, I have to say that, like, a lot of what you say has, you know, obviously was the, the catalyst for me starting this podcast and being brave enough to do it. So I appreciate that. Wow. Yeah. You Thank know, you. And, I appreciate um, that myself. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate I mean, you know, it was kind of scared to do. And then, you know, there have been voices and you're one of them that kind of, you know, like gave me the list and just do it. Um, but That's so great. now going forward, what is your, and I know it's like your historian, but I'm asking you for this advice. So what is your advice for someone, even like me, that's like interested, ready to take the leap, ready to do, you know, interested in the esoteric, interested in metaphysical things. And, you know, we may not know that much about it, but we're interested in, and also in this cultural current cultural climate, what would you say is your, is like, you know, considering where we are right now, what's your, what's the best advice going forward for us to kind of, you know, stay positive, maybe heal a little bit. I mean, right. Yeah, right. I think everybody's kind of looking for something. I'm just going to ask you. <laughs> well, I, I would offer a couple of possibilities. Okay. Um, and you touched upon one of them earlier, which I, I read about in Miracle Habits and other places. Uh, you must get away from cruel people. Mm-hmm. There's a certain point at which uh, that will stunt and 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 consume all of your your energies yeah. and your productivity. Um, there are many of us in this culture, although apparently not enough, who have made an effort to model an appropriate way of speaking to other people, a civil, decent dialogue, mm-hmm. and. Before uh, you and I came live on mic, we were talking about my article, The Man Who Destroyed Skepticism, mm-hmm. about the, James the, Randy the, the professional skeptic, mm-hmm. James Randi. And um, uh, many people appreciated the article. Many people did not appreciate the article. And the voices of opposition uh, were so vitriolic uh, in nature that uh, even in the very, very few cases, there was really only one where I attempted to have a constructive dialogue. In this case, it was with an MD. And the Mm -hmm. reason I engaged with him is because I thought he was doing some good work in public health Mm -hmm. so that there was at least a foundation Mm -hmm. at which to have a a dialogue. It proved impossible. Mm -hmm. You know, it simply proved impossible. Mm -hmm. And so one has to try to model uh, a more uh, uh, civic uh, form of dialogue But you can't hang on to that if it's not sprouting anything. Mm -hmm. And in your personal life, much as it's difficult for many, many reasons, you must resolve to get away from cruel Mm -hmm. people. It it is devastating to the individual. Mm -hmm. And one of the tactics of cruelty is to 
is plausible denial. You know, cruel people will gaslight you. Cruel people will tell you you're being overly sensitive, mm -hmm. which is a favorite trope of the cruel. Uh, cruelty is not brave. Mm -hmm. you know, cruelty seeks to disguise itself through claiming that it's not what you think it is or that you're being overly sensitive or what have you. Don't listen to mm -hmm. any of that. You know, I believe very much that the individual mm -hmm. can determine his or her own uh, needs, safety, requirements for happiness. Let no one take that from mm -hmm. you. And that touches upon this question of self-verification. Mm -hmm. You know, I really do believe in my heart, I really do believe that the sensitive, motivated individual is capable of maintaining his or her own needs for safety, for relationships, uh, for happiness. Mm -hmm. And I won't treat any of those terms like terms that need to be redefined or reframed or taken mm -hmm. away. You know, what do you mean by happiness? You know, I don't like when people do that to somebody's question. Mm -hmm. I think a sensitive 12-year-old knows what he or she means by happiness and ought to be listened yeah. to. You know, I, I come from a spiritual world where if somebody spoke in terms of happiness, at least, you know, going back into my past, it was thought to be uh, a mistake, a misperception, the wrong question. Mm. Whose happiness? What happiness? Uh, who's asking that? And I don't believe in taking people's questions from them because I do believe that the individual knows a lot about his or her own needs for safety, um, happiness, uh, a sense of self, a sense of productivity. So I really want to encourage the seeker to verify everything him or herself mm -hmm. and to dive into whatever work uh, speaks to you. If that's Crowley, dive into Crowley. Um, if that's, uh, you know, you name it, if that's Deepak mm -hmm. Chopra, you know, dive into Deepak's work. If that's, um, you know, the, the tarot guides of Eden Gray, yeah. you know, dive into that, you know, cause you don't know what doors it may mm -hmm. open. You know, I always say that because something is old doesn't mean it's valid. And because something is new doesn't mean it's shallow, you know, and, and, and one never knows what door may get cracked open. You know, this sort of apropos of the secret, you know, you may be reading a certain book on tarot, for mm -hmm. example, and think, well, you know, I like this. I'm not so sure about this. I'm not sure this history is correct. So maybe I'm going to go check out something different. And that something different might be wonderful, but you would never have found it had you not started with a work that just appealed to you, maybe for aesthetic mm -hmm. reasons. Who knows? So I, I would say get away from cruel people. Uh, trust your own questions, verify everything, and follow your affinities. Follow your affinities. They're yours. They belong to you alone. Nice. Well, thank you so much. I mean, thank you for the one-on-one. I, I thought it was going to be more <laughs> technical, but I just appreciate, um, you know, th this conversation. It gave, definitely gave me a boost, and I hope it does give everyone a kind of... And, and me. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Believe me, these exchanges are very meaningful to me. You know, the, the podcast that I... Uh, uh, usually agree to do nowadays are usually podcasts with other seekers because it's a real exchange, you know, um, as opposed to somebody saying, you know, tell us about vampires. Yeah. Are they real? You know, it's yeah. like, yeah, you know, we can talk about that, but, but I much prefer the right. exchange and this has really been fortifying. So yeah, thank you. Awesome. Okay. Thank you for listening to the esoteric Negro. Please follow us on Instagram at The Esoteric Negro. For information and inquiries, please go to theesotericnegro.com where you'll find a link to our Patreon. And please like, share, and subscribe.